And good afternoon. You're listening to Ken Hudnall. This is the Ken Hudnall Show. Coming to you from our studios right here in exciting El Paso, Texas. Gateway to the Old West. The most haunted city in the country. Well, <coughs> excuse me. Today is February the 14th. The 45th day of the year. 320 days remain till the year's over with. It's also, if I'm not mistaken... Valentine's Day. Now, and it's also been an interesting date in history. 748, the Abbasid Revolution. The Hashimi rebels under Abu Muslim Khorasani take Merv, capital of the Umayyad province, Khorasan, marking the consolidation of the Abbasid revolt. The uh, uh, 1130, the 1130 papal election exposes a rift in the College of Cardinals. 1556, having been declared a heretic and politicized by Pope Paul IV, December 4th. Um, 1555, Archbishop of Canterbury, Thomas Cranmer, is publicly defrocked in Christ Church Cathedral. 1613, the wedding of Princess Elizabeth and Frederick V of the Palatinate at Whitehall Palace took place. The uh, 1778, United States flag is formally recognized by a foreign naval vessel for the first time when French Admiral Toussaint Guillaume Picot de la Motte renders a nine-gun salute to the USS Ranger, commanded by none other than John Paul Jones. 1779, American Revolutionary War, the Battle of Kettle Creek is fought in Georgia. Also on that same date, James Cook is killed by Native Hawaiians near Kalakukua on the island of Hawaii. 1797, French Revolutionary War is the Battle of Cape St. Vincent. John Jervis, later first Earl of St. Vincent, and Rachel Nelson, later the first Viscount Nelson, lead the British Royal Navy to victory over a Spanish fleet in action near Gibraltar. 1804, Cara Dordi leads the first Serbian uprising against the Ottoman Empire. 1831, Rice Mayor of Ljubu marches into Tigray and defeats and kills Dajamak Sabagadis in the Battle of Debre Abbey. Some of the names escape me. Uh, 1835, the original Quorum of the Twelve Apostles in the Latter-day Saint Movement is formed in Kirtland, Ohio. 1849, New York City, James Knox Polk becomes the first serving president of the U.S. to have his photograph taken. 1852, Great Ormond St. Uh, Street Hospital for, chick- for Sick Children, I can't talk. First hospital in England to promote inpatient beds specifically for children is founded in Lisbon. London. 1855, Texas is linked by telegraph to the rest of the U.S. with the completion of a connection between New Orleans and Marshall, Texas. 1859, Oregon is admitted as the 33rd U.S. state. 1876, Alexander Graham Bell applies for a patent for the telephone, as does Elisha Gray. 1879, the War of the Pacific breaks out when the Chilean army occupies the Bolivian port city of Antofagasta. 1899, voting machines are approved by the U.S. Congress for use in federal elections. 
1903, the Department of Commerce and Labor is established, and later split into the Department of Commerce and the Department of Labor. You can only have so much graft in one department before it becomes so big you have to create a second department. 1912, Arizona is admitted as the 48th and last contiguous U.S. state. 1912, the U.S. Navy commissions its first class of diesel-powered submarines. 1919, the Polish-Soviet War begins. 1920, the League of Women Voters is founded in Chicago. 1924, the Computing, Tabulating, and Recording Company changes its name to International Business Machines Corporation, or IBM as we know it. 1929, saw the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. Seven people, six of them gangster rivals of Al Capone's gang, are murdered in Chicago. 1942, Battle of Pasir Pahang uh, contributes to the fall of Singapore. In 1943, Rostov-on-Don, uh, Russia, is liberated. Also on that same date in 1943, uh, the Tunisia campaign. General Hans Jurgen von Amrin's 5th Panzer Army launches a concerted attack against Allied positions in Tunisia. 1944, an action of February 14, 1944, a Royal Navy submarine sinks a German-controlled Italian Regia Maria submarine in the Strait of Malacca. 1945, on the first day of the bombing of Dresden, the British Royal Air Force and U.S. Army Air Force begins firebombing Dresden. 1945, navigational errors lead to the mistaken bombing of Prague, Czechoslovakia by U.S. Army Air Force's squadron of B-17 assisting in the Soviet Red Army's Vistula Oder Offensive. Uh, 1945 saw Mostar liberated by Yugoslav partisans. Also on the same date in 1945, President Roosevelt meets King Ibn Saud of Saudi Arabia aboard the USS Quincy, officially beginning U.S.-Saudi diplomatic relations. Uh, 1946, the Bank of England is nationalized. 1949, the Knesset, Parliament of Israel, convenes for the first time. The uh, 1979 in Kabul, Satami Mili militants kidnapped the American ambassador to Afghanistan. Adolf Dubbs is later killed during a gunfight between kidnappers and police. 1983, U.S. American uh, Bank of Knoxville, Tennessee collapses. Its president, James Butcher, is later convicted of fraud. 1989, Union Carbide agrees to pay $470 million to the Indian government for damages it caused in the 1984 Bhopal disaster. That's when the, uh, the leakage of um, toxic uh, gas resulted in a lot of deaths. Uh, 1989, Iranian leader Ruhollah Khomeini issues a fatwa encouraging Muslims to kill Salman Rushdie, author of the Satanic Verses. 1990, 92 people are killed on Indian Airlines Flight 605 crashes in Bangalore, India. Uh, 1990, Voyager 1 spacecraft takes the photograph of planet Earth but later becomes famous as the pale blue dot. 2000, the spacecraft near Shoemaker enters orbit around asteroid 433 Eros, the first spacecraft to orbit an asteroid. 2003, Iraq disarmament crisis. 
The UNMOVIC Executive Chairman Hans Bix reports to the United Nations Security Council that uh, disarmament inspectors have found no weapons of mass destruction in Baharist, Iraq. Uh, 2004 in the suburb of Moscow, the roof of the Transvaal water park collapses, kills more than 28 and wounds <coughs> 193 others. 2005 in Beirut, 23 people, including former Prime Minister Rafiq Hirari, are killed when the equivalent of about a thousand kilograms of TNT is detonated while Harris's motorcade drives through the city. 2005, seven people were killed and 151 wounded in a series of bombings by suspected Al-Qaeda-linked militants at, uh, at uh, Makati, Davao City, and General Santos City, all in the Philippines. 2005, YouTube is launched by a group of college students, eventually becoming the largest video sharing website in the world and a main source of viral videos. Uh, 2011, as part of Arab Spring, the Bahraini uprising begins with a day of rage. 2018, Jacob Zuma resigns as president of South Africa. 2018, a shooting at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida is one of the deadliest school massacres with 17 fatalities and 17 injuries. And in 2019, Pulwama attack takes place in Lithpura in Pulwama District, Jammu and Kashmir, uh, India, in which 40 Central Reserve Police Force personnel and a suicide bomber are killed and 35 more are injured. You know, the interesting thing about all this, uh, these suicide bombers, what have they accomplished other than killing themselves? If they had a message to give, uh, they couldn't give it after that. It's like the people that set themselves on fire to protest this and that and the other. Once the fire's put out, who knows what your message is? Who cares? Well, we were talking about um, this strange world, strange creatures from time and space, I think was our last show. You know, educated theologians and scholars attached to the Vatican made an investigation into the burgeoning fad of spiritualism in the 1850s. Uh, two young ladies, the Fox sisters, I think they were, actually made spiritualism uh, a well-known fad with table knocking and all that. Examination led to the issuance of a papal bull that warned Catholics that spiritualism was dangerous and it was the work of the devil. If you don't understand it, it's the work of the devil, no question about it. And despite all these warnings, millions of people were gripped in the hopeful effort to communicate with the spirit world Elementals played the game with relish, implementing a whole new lore about life on other worlds and other planes of existence. New occults were spawned, and dozens of frames of reference were established, all based entirely on what were seemingly sincere messages from these characters from the great beyond. We were guided from belief in fairies and their secret commonwealth to new and more scientific beliefs in interplanetary visitors and the intergalactic council. Flying saucer phenomena generated a whole new set of theories and beliefs as 
More and more people had encounters with Venusians and Martians in the back hills of Kentucky and the deserts of Arizona. The crew that never rest, as many have called them, were up to their old tricks, but the gang was new. Once the skilled investigator recognized just how intangible the manifestations really are, he's catapulted into the more esoteric world of philosophy. He struggled with the task of interpreting these unreal events, trying to understand their hidden purposes. Unfortunately, the route to madness phenomenon is fond of creating allegorical situations which can't be interpreted without excessive scholarship. The problem is to sort out the meaningful from the rubbish and to search for the hidden inconsistencies buried in the mountains of communications from the past and the present. Descriptions of all the great religions contain a number of sub, uh, subtle correlations. Much of the literature deals vaguely with rumors of some great past civilization. Isolated Indian tribes in North and South America with legends and myths very similar to the stories found in the Bible, including tales of a great flood which destroyed most of mankind thousands of years ago. The Toltec Indians, for example, even had a tradition about a... Um, Zokalali, a very high tower they erected, and according to uh, one of their writers, presently their languages were confused and not being able to understand each other. They went to different parts of the earth. That was the Tower of Babel story that you find in our scriptures. So how did a remote Indian tribe come up with the same story? Atlantean scholars have labored to assemble all this lore as further proof the Atlanteans did it exist as a real continent, which was destroyed by some great natural catastrophe. But much of the information passed along by the Atlantean elemental state that Atlantis was an evil place, dominated by warlock technology very similar to their own. And the Atlanteans eventually destroyed themselves, or were deliberately destroyed by some greater force that took a dim view of their militarism. And I might point out what's been in our news just recently is four um, unknown aircraft have been shot down. Were they UFOs? Were they Chinese balloons? Were they, you know, what were they? You know, flying saucer lore, we have tales passed on by spacemen of a great planet located between Mars and Jupiter and identified variously as Maldek and Clarion and a dozen other names. Inhabitants of this planet learned to smash the atom and soon succeeded in smashing their planet. Broken into thousands of bits and pieces, and these fragments now constitute the asteroid belt. So one important thread runs through all this literature. A great civilization once existed prior to the appearance of modern man, and it was either destroyed or destroyed itself. Surviving physical evidence, which we'll, be, we'll go into in uh, future shows, indicates that such a civilization did exist on this planet. Its inhabitants have vanished before or soon after man crawled out of his cave. Now, it may be that the elementals are actually a part of the human psyche and that they've been present with us as some scrambled racial memory of the distant past. Like the Garden of Eden, Atlantis may be nothing more than an allegory designed to give us a clue about our own history. In Flying Saucer lore, there's elaborately detailed literature asserting that Venus was actually the Garden of Eden. And Adam and Eve were 
actually Venusians planted here to colonize Earth. It's, you know, uh, basically it's another variation on the Noah's Ark theme. And even more interesting are the contiguous uh, activities of the this para-human group, which has remained in constant touch with us throughout history and has greatly influenced our theological and philosophical ideas. They're, frankly, proven liars and mischief makers, but it's also uh, possible that they've been slyly trying to tell us something about ourselves. Recent years, the flying saucer occupants have passed along innumerable warnings about how we've been upsetting the balance of the universe with our atomic bombs. They've laced their warnings with blood-covering tales about uh, Maldek. One controversial UFO report from Mendoza, Argentina is rather typical of these warnings. September 1st, 1968, Carlos Pesinetti, 26, and Fernando Jose Villagas, 29, were driving home from their job at the Mendoza Casino at 3.30 in the morning. As they drove along, their car suddenly stalled. Got out to look under the hood and discovered a huge circular machine hovering nearby. Three beings in coveralls appeared, they said, and found themselves paralyzed, unable to move. A foreign-sounding voice rang in their heads. It was as though they had put into our ears the tiny earplug speakers used in the transistors. According to the voice, we'd made three journeys around the sun, studying customs and languages of the inhabitants of the system. Mathematics is the universal language. Then a circular screen, similar to a television screen, appeared next to the object. The two men were shown a series of images. The first was a waterfall in a lush country. The second, a mushroom-shaped cloud. And the third, the waterfall seen again, but without the water. After the entities got back into their machine and flew off, the two were able to move again. Your story contains all the familiar ingredients of thousands of other UFO contact tales. Their automobile stalls, they were paralyzed, heard a telepathic voice, and given a message. And the meaning of the message is quite obvious. Police officers, doctors, lawyers, college professors, government officials, and just plain folks by the thousands have shared similar experiences in recent years. Members of, of this perhaps mythical wings over the world have really been engaged in an all-out effort to convince us of some impending disaster. It's not unusual they should relate their warnings with tales about past civilizations and that followed the same woeful path. The Atlanta story seems to acquire another meaning in view of all this. Atlantis could be part of our future instead of part of our past. Maybe we're the Atlanteans and our world will be destroyed. Well, you know, soon after he became president of the United Arab Republic, Gamal Abdel Nasser ordered a giant 80-foot statue moved from the desert to a park in Cairo. The statue had been standing for uncounted centuries near the step pyramid. A battery of engineer and workmen descended on it, equipped with bulldozers and tractors and monstrous cranes. They struggled with the project for weeks. First they were perplexed, then they were annoyed, and finally humiliated by the discovery that with modern technology we simply couldn't budge this mammoth piece of rock. This raised even more troublesome questions. 
How did the ancient Egyptians move the statue into place to begin with? If we couldn't move it with our technology, how could ancient Egyptians move it? You know, archaeologists have been arguing for years about the methods employed by the ancient stonemasons. Some quite moronic theories have not only been suggested, but been widely accepted as the answer. These theories are, of course, taught to school children. Mysteries regarded as solved. Nobody asks any questions because the powers that be have spoken. There are over 90 pyramids in Egypt alone, and there are dozens of others all over the world. The largest of all is located deep in China. And most of the Egyptian pyramids weren't used as burial places for pharaohs, but the Great Pyramid of Giza was never employed for this purpose. Nobody has a clue why it was even built. And some of the gigantic stones in the structures and in the great temple spotted around Egypt were apparently taken from quarries hundreds of miles away. Part of archaeological theory is that these stones were floated up the Nile on rafts and moved into place on wooden rollers. And since some of these blocks weigh as much as five tons, this means that in order to float them, the Egyptians would have had to build huge rafts capable of displacing over five tons of water. Otherwise, they'd just sink to the bottom with their load. The Egyptians didn't amount to much when it came to shipbuilding, though. No evidence of these super rafts has ever turned up. And the amount of wood that would be required to do it is more than all the trees that existed in Egypt anywhere remotely close to that time period. We're told that hundreds of thousands of slaves were pressed into pyramid building during certain seasons of each year. And this leads us to, of course, problems with logistics. It would take a complex organization to feed these hundreds of thousands daily administered to their needs. And various modern engineers and experts have applied their slide rules to the problem. And the most liberal estimate of the time required to construct the Great Pyramid alone is 600 years. And strangely enough, the ancient Egyptians left profuse records of everything else, but nobody's turned up even a single piece of papyrus describing the planning or building of these massive monuments. The stones were cut and dressed to such perfection that a piece of paper can't be inserted between them. And obviously, these early stonemasons were superb craftsmen. And obviously, there were a lot of them in order to undertake and complete such enormous task. There's a mystery that can't be logically explained by science, of course. Cults develop, which create explanations of their own. Atlantophiles uh, naturally agree the Egyptians didn't build the pyramids at all. And UFO busts claim they were built by the wonderful space people. Morris K. Jessup, an astrophysicist and early student of ufology, reviewed the question and suggested levitation is the only feasible answer. He said, I believe that this lifting machine was a spaceship, probably of vast proportions. It brought colonists to various parts of the Earth, probably from other terrestrial areas, and it applied the, supplied the heavy lift power for erecting great stone works. And it was suddenly destroyed or taken away. Such a hypothesis would underwrite all the movement of stone over which archaeologists and engineers have pondered because, quite frankly, there are unexplainable stone uh, structures literally scattered all over the planet. And this presents us with an interesting contradiction. 
If some super society in the sky had the technology to build a spaceship of vast proportions and fly it all the way to our humble planet, why did it have the need to play around with stone blocks? And if they wanted to leave behind evidence of their visit, they didn't do much of a job for that, for never figured out the real meaning of these monuments. Couldn't have engraved a nice little message for us inside the Great Pyramid explaining the whole thing in, let's say, 75 languages. The only carvings found inside the Great Pyramid are a few little scratchings on the roof of the upper chamber, which archaeologists regard as stonemason marks. Similar marks have been found in other structures. There's been that suggestion of just the ancient equivalent of Kilroy was here. For centuries, the spirit mediums and recipients who chatted with ghostly Atlanteans have told us the Great Pyramid really contains a hidden chamber which is crammed with goodies that will explain everything to us when the proper time comes. And not wishing to be left out, flying saucer contactees have repeated the same promise. An anthropologist named George Hunt Williamson wrote in the early 1950s the builders of the Great Pyramid buried one of their great spaceships near the structure. And it's going to be revealed, no doubt, within a comparatively short period of time. It's only been 70 years so far. That there are many secret chambers in the Great Pyramid, and yet its true entrance rides under the silent objects like a land and lion, and it's like a man, the Sphinx, which is not going to remain silent much longer. On February 9, 1960, a fertilizer salesman named Reinhold Smith was picked up by a flying saucer and flown to Egypt. Of course, like all the other contactees, he had to go write a book about it. It's called The Edge of Tomorrow. And he said these friendly space people conducted him on a tour of these hidden chambers where he saw, among other things, the true cross on which Christ had died. He was also shown 32 tablets of heavy quality paper, rather dark in color. And he said he was surprised when he found the events of the past, present, and future described in modern-day English in black ink and written in beautiful longhand <coughs> Excuse me. Good Lord. His records indicated, according to Smith, the end of this present Earth cycle will be in 1998. Give or take a few years. So after the endless discussions of the hidden chambers in the pyramid, we found they had a genuine eyewitness who'd been there and seen them. Unless, of course, Smith's adventure was just another variation of the classical visits to the underground fairy palaces of yesteryear. And then science took over. In 1969, a group of American scientists headed by Dr. Louis Alvarez traveled to Egypt and set up expensive cosmic ray detectors around the Great Pyramid. Their theory was that any cosmic ray penetrating the pyramid and passing through hidden chambers would be recorded as moving slightly faster than ray particles moving through solid stone. So they fiddled with their gadgets for months and got some very eccentric readings at first. But finally, in February on uh, in the February little, one more, in the February sixth, nineteen seventy issue of Science, Doctor Alvarez announced that no hidden chambers had been found with his sophisticated apparatus. And the cultists, of course, all nudged each other and winked. Obviously, it was a cover-up, part of the great conspiracy to keep the truth from the public. Well, men have been scratching their heads over the Great Pyramid for at least 4,000 years that we know of. It's never really been dated and could be considerably older. In fact, uh, one scientific study said that 
some of the weathering was done by water, and there hadn't been that much rain in Egypt in over 10,000 years. Whoever built it was so clever that countless efforts to find an interest met with failure for thousands of years. Finally, in 820 A.D., the Caliph al-Mamun launched a full-scale attack on the structure, expecting to find it filled with treasure. His men chipped away at it, heating the stones with fires and cooling them suddenly by pouring vinegar over. And slowly the stones cracked and they worked their way into the pyramid until they came up on a passageway that was completely empty. They found a larger passageway, now known as the Great Gallery, that leads upward to two small chambers. The lower chamber's entrance is so small that it has the enter on his hands and knees. The upper chamber contains nothing but a crude stone tub that really doesn't resemble the elaborately guy used by the ancient Egyptians to entomb deceased from royalty. Total absence of artifacts and hieroglyphics has given archaeologists plenty to speculate over. Some have suggested the pyramid was used as a kind of grain elevator and that wheat was measured out in that tub. Others, of course, have tried to find uh, astronomical significance to it. Mid-19th century, the pseudoscience of pyramidology was born. A writer named John Taylor published a book in which he concluded the whole purpose of the structure was to preserve ancient Egyptian measurements. He was followed by an astronomer, Charles Piazzi Smith, who extended this notion to include prophecies of the past and the future. He measured every inch of the pyramid inside and out in every single angle. 1864, he published a 600-page book expounding his theories, and it caused it up for an archaeological circus for years after that. Small and devoted cults still exist, even today, trying to validate his now thoroughly discredited concepts. Most of the literature on Lost Atlantis also discusses Smith and pyramidology. UFO cults have also had their pyramidologist. This is the pyramids are a cornerstone in human history that also serve as key evidence to many cults with widely diversified causes. Aside from the few major population centers, ancient Egypt was a mud hut culture. Then as now, the masses lived undernourished lives and grinding poverty. Technical skills are rare. But somehow they managed to quarry these gigantic stones, transport them hundreds of miles, and put them into place with geometric precision. We know the Egyptians did build the 90-odd pyramids. village of Moreau on the Upper Nile contains dozens of pyramids alone, plus numerous great temples and tombs which are still standing. But why did they build the Great Pyramid? We've never had an answer to that. Moving from Egypt to the country of Laos, we have the Plain of Jars. It's been frequently mentioned in the war dispatches from China. Did you ever wonder how it got its name? Well, it seems to be covered with jars, huge stone jars. Some of them are over six feet high, and some are so large they can hold six men. Over a thousand of these peculiar artifacts scattered around a high plateau surrounded by mountains. They were apparently carved out of limestone and granite boulders and been there literally forever. Nobody seems to know who carved them, when they were carved, or even why they were carved. Why would anyone bother to spend weeks carving a giant stone jar in such a remote place? What would you put in it? And the mysterious stone masons left their fruits, uh, the fruits of their labor all over our planet. Many of these fruits make no sense at all. In Costa Rica, there are giant stone balls found deep in the jungles. 
Some of these are as big as 8 feet in diameter and weigh more than 16 tons. And they're amazingly round and smooth. Scores of smaller ones, some only a few inches in diameter, have also been found. Scientists have been able to come up with an explanation for their purpose, although they're obviously man-made. Similar stones have been found in Mexico and Guatemala. According to Science Digest in uh, the June uh, 1967 uh, issue, one thing the scientists agree on is that the spears must have been very important to the communities of people that made them. Using the tools they had, it must have taken many years just to make one, even with a lot of men working on it. Like the jars of Laos, the balls are made of granite and limestone. And the U.S. itself is covered with strange artifacts and stone ruins of unknown origin. Every state has several mysterious sites. In West Virginia, there are the remains of huge circular stone structures apparently predating the Indians. Many states, there are ruins which archaeologists have muttered about being of Roman origin. And some of these sites have become minor local tourist attractions. Others are marked only by brief highway signs. And a few, such as Mystery Hill in North Salem, New Hampshire, have attained some celebrity. Mystery Hill features several chambers, or perhaps tombs, topped by a gigantic sacrificial table weighing over uh, four tons, supported on stone legs and is carefully grooved. In 1969, the New England Antiquities Research Association conducted carbon-14 tests around the site and concluded it was built about 1,000 B.C. Recent investigations have demonstrated that some of the huge stones on Mystery Hill are carefully aligned with certain stars. And each year, the sun sets directly over the winter solstice monolith on the first day of winter, December 21st, when viewed from the center of the site, which is the sacrificial table. The Delaware Indians have a tradition that a race of giants once inhabited the region east of the Mississippi, living in enormous cities and fortifications. And there are innumerable references to giants and other Indian lore and ancient literature all over the world, including, of course, the famous... Biblical statement from Genesis chapter 6, verse 4, there were giants in the earth in those days. South American Indians have many legends about giants and their special civilization. Most of the tales, no matter what the source, assert the giants were unfriendly and even hostile to normal men. Bones of giants who must have been 8 to 12 feet tall have been found in the mounds of Minnesota and several other places. So it's entirely possible a race of giants did exist in earlier times and some of these used stone uh, constructions may have been their handiwork. Unfortunately, science doesn't believe in giants, so with so many other things they can't explain, they've just ignored the evidence. Then um, there's also considerable evidence that Christopher Columbus was a, Columbus was a rather late arrival to the New World. He was probably preceded by the Vikings and maybe even the ancient Phoenicians. Chinese artifacts have been found in Mexico and California, so perhaps even the Chinese beat Chris by a number of years, or perhaps a number of centuries. A knight from the Orkney Islands left the carving in Massachusetts in the 14th century. Near heaven, sir, Oklahoma, there's a stone 12 feet high, 10 feet wide, and 16 inches thick, covered with ancient uh, Scandinavian runic symbols. It was discovered by the Choctaw Indians in 1830. And archaeologists have been arguing about it ever since. And several other rune stones have been found, the most famous being the Kensington Stone, found by a farmer near Kensington, Minnesota at the turn of the century. The last century, that is. 
Two of the room stones have been found in Oklahoma in the recent years. The last one was discovered by two schoolboys near Patel, Oklahoma in September 1967. And as usual, the archaeologists are sharply divided over the validity of these discoveries. One group immediately cried hoax, even though it would require an ancient uh, expert archaeologist and linguist to perpetuate such a hoax. Others, such as Frederick Powell, a noted Norse scholar, seem to think the stones may actually be authentic. Fifty years before Columbus, con Queen Isabella into financing its expedition, somebody drew up a rough map of North America. A copy of this map was discovered by Lawrence Whitten, a rare book dealer from New Haven, Connecticut, in 1957. Now part of the rare document collection in the Beinecke Library of Yale University, known as the Yale Vinland Map. Scientific investigators have uh, dated it to 1440. And as usual, the leading experts have been arguing about it ever since. Some have branded it an out and out hoax, and others regarded it as further evidence that Vikings are frequent visitors to the New World. Uh, more substantial evidence has been found in the form of ruins of a Viking longhouse on the Ungava Peninsula in northern Canada. A team from Laval University has dated it between the 11th and 12th centuries. Numerous other ruins and artifacts have been found all over North America. For example, two remarkably similar axes, both apparently medieval origin, have been discovered in Beardmore, Ontario and Rocky Nook Point, Massachusetts. And not to be outdone, archaeologists from the Smithsonian Institute uncovered a small slab of stone <coughs> covered with ciphers and 1885 near Bat Creek, Tennessee. They decided it was probably the work of Cherokee Indians, but modern specialists such as Dr. Joseph Mahan, who I knew, the Museum of Arts and Crafts in Columbus. <coughs> Excuse me. I don't know what's wrong. Taking a second look at it, disputed the old Indian theory. Dr. Mahan knows Cherokee, and he persuaded the Smithsonian to re-examine the Back Creek Stone. He said you simply don't ignore evidence because it doesn't fit current theory. And a similar stone was found by Manfred Metcalf at Fort Benning, Georgia, which isn't right on the edge of Columbus, Georgia. 19, found it in 1968. He was looking for stones to build a barbecue pit in his backyard when he unearthed this particular stone. Nine inches square and covered with triangles and circles and straight waving lines. He gave it to Dr. Mahan, who thought the markings appeared to be characteristically Mediterranean. And another scientist, Dr. Cyrus Gordon, chairman of Mediterranean Studies at Brandeis University, agreed. He said there were strong similarities between the Metcalf Stone and Sappos of Minoan writing dating back 3,000 years to the Bronze Age civilization that flourished on the Mediterranean island of Crete from 3,000 to 1,100 B.C. Dr. Gordon became the center of another controversy when he announced that a sample of Phoenician writing found on a stone in Brazil was authentic. After other archaeologists all immediately announced it as a fraud. After all, it was hardly possible the ancient Phoenicians could have visited Brazil. Certainly they didn't go for Carnival. As for the Mount Creek Stone, Dr. Gordon thinks it might have been the handiwork of Hebrews from Palestine during the Bronze Age. Both scientists speculate that ancient Semitic tribes from the Middle East may have visited North America thousands of years ago. 
This, of course, revised memories of the lost tribes of Israel. Could they have somehow found their way to this continent and become uh, that lost American culture described in the Mormon Bible? Dr. Mahan believes that some Indian tribes can be traced back to seafaring Mediterranean peoples. The Bering Strait land bridge, which may or may not ever have existed, certainly couldn't account for everybody that was here. The Uchi points out are racially and linguistically different from the North American tribes. Their religion says we came as the sun came and we went as the sun went. And Dr. Mahan interprets this to mean the Uchi came from the east across the Atlantic Ocean, moved northwards from Florida to Georgia. Some archaeologists tend to lump runestones together with the stones bearing in Indian petroglyphs. Now, petroglyphs are designs carved into rocks as path markers, and thousands have been found all over the Americas. And although innumerable isolated Indian tribes are obviously responsible for them, there are many interesting similarities in the symbols used. And some of these same symbols have been found carved on other ancient rocks in other parts of the world, suggesting this form of writing was universal at one time. Even though the races and tribes are responsible, couldn't understand each other's languages, and in most cases had little or no contact. Archaeologists uh, studiously try to overlook the fact that some of these pictographs can be traced to ancient Mediterranean cultures. But the runic writing is quite distinct from the Indian petroglyphs. The rune stones carry alphabetic symbols, while petroglyphs bear uh, picture writing, loosely related as the, to the uh, Egyptian hieroglyphics. And the Kensington Stone, as translated by Frederick Paul, describes how eight Goths and 22 Norwegians established a camp. One group went fishing, and when they came back, the ten who had remained behind were red with blood and dead. And certainly, that does raise very interesting questions. If, in fact, it's what it purports to be. It's one of the earliest reports... Uh, of explorations of this continent. The year given is 1362. Indian petroglyphs, on the other hand, were customarily devoted to trail information, where to find water, and things such as that. One interesting uh, Indian pictograph particular interest is a complex design that has been found throughout North, Central, and South America. It depicts a series of squares inside one another. The Indians call it the Mother Earth symbol. To the Pimas, it's the house of Tehu, so the uh, Kunas in Panama, it's the Tree of Life. And I saw a few symbols like that as I wandered through the jungle in my misspent youth. Anthropologist uh, Harold Sterling Gladwin saw something else in it when he studied this symbol carved on the wall of Casa Grande, Arizona. In his book, Men Out of Asia, he noted the Mother Earth symbols identical to the Minoan labyrinth depicted on coins from Gnosis Crete, dated uh, 200 B.C., and the famous labyrinth was said to have been built by Daedalus to hide the half-man, half-bull minotaur. Dr. Gladwin and Dr. Clyde Keeler of Milledgeville, Georgia, both seem to think the Indians' use of the ancient labyrinth symbol is evidence of the influence of the early Minoan culture. In the early 1960s, Angelos Galanopoulos, a Greek scientist, came up with still another theory for Atlantis. He suggested that sunken Minoan cities of Crete might have supplied the basis for the Atlantis legends. According to his theory, Plato got his dates wrong. Atlantis may have disappeared only a thousand years or so ago before the 
historian heard the tale about 9,000 years before. It may have been one of the Greek islands, possibly Thera. Divers and archaeologists working in the waters there in recent years have uncovered all kinds of evidence indicating the Minoan culture came to a very abrupt end. So abrupt that uh, craftsmen left their tools next to unfinished works and ran. Explanation currently in vogue is that a sudden volcanic eruption destroyed the islands. Dr. Yalanopoulos has uh, been partially successful in matching Plato's description of Atlantis with what's now known about Thera. Dr. Bruce Heason, an oceanographer, believes the eruption occurred uh, about 1400 B.C. Needless to say, other scientists and scholars loudly dispute the date. If you get ten archaeologists and other uh, scholars and scientists in a room, you'll have twelve theories before they leave the room. None of everybody wants to be first. Nobody's going to uh, accept somebody else's theory without a lot of argument. We do know the early Crete was a center of an impressive culture. Great cities and temples were built there, and it was a major naval power. It isn't likely, though, that Crete and Thera could have lived up to Plato's description of the super-civilization of Atlantis. Still, we have all the perplexing evidence of the rune stones and other artifacts scattered around the continent, which demonstrates that men from Europe and possibly from Crete and Thera did visit American pre-Columbian times. It's even possible groups settled here and built forts and temples, the remnants of which have served to augment the beliefs of dozens of cults and French societies. In a learned dissertation on petroglyphs published by the Smithsonian in 1937, Julian Stewart found on the arguments that attempts to prove uh, that attempt to prove that Egyptians, Scythians, Chinese, and a host of other overall peoples, including the ten lost tribes of Israel, invaded America in the ancient days. He noted that devotees of the subject had written voluminously, argued bitterly, and even fought duels over the truth of statements. <laughs> Now, many years later, the Smithsonian is slowly changing its tune. They've stopped blaming the Indians for all these carved slabs. Indians have been denying credit all along. They've said, others did it. We didn't do it. But the learned archaeologist said, oh, yes, you did. You just don't remember you did it. Now, when the white men first arrived here and... Uh, British Columbia, Canada for, Canada, for example, in 1860, the West Coast Indians had thoroughly in, incorporated the carvings into their legends. Phil Thornburg, a petroglyph expert in Victoria, Canada, said that uh, they showed them to white explorers and explained they were left by an ancient civilization with a hub of creation. There's what appears to be the carving of a Chinese dragon, known in Indian legends as a Tzitzudo. It does seem to be an oriental background to them. Being carved in sandstone, it's virtually impossible to say what age they were. And uh, Thornburg said, I found some that were buried under more than a foot of topsoil. Now, this wasn't the kind of topsoil that would have washed over them. This was formed there, placing the age of the carvings about five to 7,000 years before. And that's really ancient for this particular country. He found one petroglyph on Vancouver Island that had a hole worn completely through it by dripping water. Proof had been there for a long, long time. Another site, he found a carving that had been crumbled when a massive tree grew straight up through it. Petroglyphs, which were definitely the work of Indian tribes, often tell interesting stories about hunts and battles and in several instances encounters with the little people and other phantom inhabitants. 
Some contain solemn warnings that the valley or mountain ahead is the abode of these sinister, uh, sinister uh, phantoms. Cherokee Indians have legends about the strange entities that resided around Chimney North Carolina. White people have also seen them occasionally. In 1806, the Reverend George Newton reported in the Raleigh Register an extraordinary vision of thousands of beings in the air. They possessed a glittering appearance resembling the human form and was seen uh, on or about Chimney Rock on the 31st of July last year. Researcher Angelo Caparello found this testimony by Mrs. Reeves, one of the alleged witnesses. She said, I looked toward the chimney. I was absolutely amazed for south of the Chimney Rock and floating along the side of the mountains were a huge crowd of white phantom-like beings. Their clothing and filmy as it looked, it had to be clothing, was so brilliant a white and almost hurt her eyes to look at them. And although she felt weak somehow, it left a solemn and pleasing impression on her mind. I mean, frankly, Chimney Rock is only one of the countless haunted places on our increasingly bizarre planet. You know, vitrify is a $10 word, meaning to change in the glass. And glass is made by heating sand or silicon. And there are various oxides of silicon, uh, boron, phosphorus, and other materials, and then cooling the result rapidly to prevent uh, crystallization. Now, the process is fairly simple, and man has been manufacturing glass for thousands of years. When the first atomic bomb was exploded in New Mexico in 1945, it not only left a big hole in the ground, but the tremendous heat melted the sand and fused it together in glass-like fragments. And these scorched particles were identical to the objects known as tectites, which have been found all over the world and have baffled science for years. One recent expedition found tectites scattered over an area 6,000 by 4,000 miles from Tasmania to north of the Philippines and from the East Indies to the east coast of Africa. They were analyzed as being approximately 700,000 years old. Now, like nature, science abhors a vacuum, so most books of mineralogy, mineralogy blandly assert that tectites are meteoric origin. It's a nice theory, and everybody seems to believe it, but a majority of all meteorites are made out of solid iron, and most are vaporized by the intense heat of friction when they enter our atmosphere. Substances capable of melting into glass would, of course, burn up before they hit the surface of the, of the Earth. In 1969, a group of NASA scientists dished up a, a new version of the meteorite theory. They announced the tectites were from the moon. Eons ago, they speculated a huge meteor had plummeted into the moon, striking at such force it impacted, its impact hurled tons of moon dust into space. And this lunar material attained escape velocity and passed into an orbit around the Earth where it gradually was sucked downward by gravity, entered the Earth's atmosphere, melted, and fell into the Pacific Ocean. So, another mystery solved. Unless you happen to have an 8th grade education, a slide rule, and a basic knowledge of the mechanics involved, then you'd find that the impacting meteor would have to be of enormous size, be traveling at fantastic velocity in order to accomplish the first step which would be casting the debris beyond the moon's gravity. And such a meteor would in all probability affect the moon in other discernible ways, such as changing its orbit. Next, a long series of spectacular coincidences would be necessary for the debris to enter the proper orbit at the proper time so it would lapse into a retrograde orbit around the Earth. And finally, since tons of tectites are scattered in paths across the Pacific floor, and since we know that less than 5% of a mass entering the Earth's atmosphere is likely to survive and hit the surface, the quantity of lunar material necessary to produce these tectites must have been larger than 
the original impacting meteor. Now, how's the glass have fallen from the sky, though? In fact, since ancient times, all kinds of junk has been dropping on us, ranging from stone pillars and metal wheels to huge blocks of ice and vast quantities of real blood and even raw meat. Science conveniently ignores everything but the iron lumps, which they presume are pieces of old planets drifting around in space. To astronomy's credit, we do know that there are groups of this debris in the Earth's orbit around the sun, and we can predict annual meteor showers that occur as we pass through this mess. One chunk of glass and metal crashed into a driveway in Canavton, Ontario in September 1968. Wesley Reed looked at it and saw it was too hot to handle. After it cooled down, he found he had a brownish object weighing about 12 ounces. When it was tested by experts, they found it was made of glass laced with a small quantity of pure zinc. Whatever it was didn't appear to be part of a man-made satellite, which doesn't contain much glass anyway, and it definitely fell out of the sky. Earth's phantom inhabitants are always dumping their garbage on us. Flying saucer enthusiasts have been collecting and analyzing this junk for years and have found pieces of pure aluminum, magnesium, tin, copper, slag, and endless varieties of silicon. Unfortunately for them, none of this aerial debris seems to support their condition to UFOs or spacecraft from other planets. Nor is any known meteorite strewn such materials or tectites in its past. The discovery of tectites and vitrified stones among the ancient ruins of Baalbek has inspired another popular UFO myth that Baalbek once served as a spaceport for rocket ships from another world. Soviet ethnologist Professor Agrist proposed that there in an article in Moscow's uh, Literanaya Gazeta in 1959, he also suggested that Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed by an atomic bomb. Lot's wife, he asserted, didn't turn into a pillar of salt, but was actually reduced to a pile of ashes when she ignored a warning not to linger behind Lot's fleeing party. Now, Baalbek is, Baalbek is located in Lebanon, east of Beirut, north of Damascus, Syria. In ancient times, it was a thriving city filled with great temples dedicated to Baal, the sun god. The pillars and stone slabs, some of which weigh many tons, still standing are impressive, but no more impressive than the scores of other similar ruins scattered throughout the Middle East. Enormous ruins of this type can be found deep in the heart of inhospitable deserts, raising once again the question of how the ancient peoples managed to quarry, transport, and erect these monuments with crude tools and a minimum of mechanical aids. But somehow they did, and they managed very well. 1948, an expedition from the University of Chicago unearthed the remnants of an ancient village 30 miles east of Kirkuk, Iraq. Dr. Robert Braidwood estimated the village had been settled about 8,000 years before. Baalbek is in comparison a modern city. Professor Agra's theories were a bombshell of assorted cults, particularly the flying saucer believers. He, rewarded the presence of he regarded the presence of tectites as evidence that atomic-powered rockets had once used the, the vast stone platforms at Baalbek as launching areas. Apparently, he didn't know that vitrified ruins are a common phenomenon all over the world. Forts and towers so old there are no legends about them can be found throughout northern Europe, and the British Isles and walls of many of these are vitrified. At some point in the distant past, these structures must have been subjected to tremendous heat, though not necessarily from the blast of some nuclear-powered rocket, though. Lightning is the explanation most frequently offered by science, but there's no evidence to indicate that lightning bolts vitrify stone or even sand although we really know very little about lightning and its effects. 
will take dozens of lightning bolts, all striking the same spot to produce these vitrified monuments. In some parts of the world, such as an area of 18,000 square yards outside Cusco, Peru, whole hillsides have been vitrified. Theories of volcanic activity and glacial movement have been offered to account for these, but none of these theories really work. There are legends describing how the planet was once bathed in fire, maybe more than once. So this vitrification could be the product of some nearly forgotten natural catastrophe. But again, we have no evidence of it. October 8, 1871, a gigantic fireball and meteor roared over the Midwest, causing a rash of disastrous fires in several states, including the famous Chicago Fire. Now, with apologies to the lady's cow that supposedly knocked over a lantern, thousands of people were killed in Illinois and Wisconsin, and vast areas were ravaged by flames that night. Similar fiery visitor from space could have caused the vitrifications. Uh, another strange phenomenon could be to blame. From time to time, overpowering waves of heat from an unknown source have concentrated in specific areas. Figueria, Portugal, suffered one of these mysterious blasts of heat for two minutes on July 6, 1949. Temperature went up to 158 degrees. Hundreds of people collapsed in the streets. Thousands of chickens and ducks killed over dead. And the Mondego River dried up suddenly in several places, killing countless fish. We don't understand this phenomenon at all, and it's possible even more intense heat waves of this type have occurred in the past, but again, we have no proof. We do know something caused the vitrification. Well, on that note, we come to the end of today's show. We'll talk more about some strange things that have happened in our next show. Until then, this is Ken Hudnall for the Ken Hudnall Show, saying have a truly great evening.